Welcome to Passing Shots, presented by Pro 10 International in association with the MLJ Group. This is Pete Zebron, your host. Alongside me today is CEO of the MLJ Group, Sandy Middleman. Good evening, Sandy. Good evening, Pete. Great to be back. Indeed, and we'd like to remind everyone you can call the show at 347-637-1197. You can also reach us on Twitter at Pro10Radio and on Facebook.com slash Pro10Radio. We'll take your questions any way you'd like to reach us, and you can also log on to Pro10Radio.com for all the podcast and future show information. We have a great show tonight with Paul Kildary joining us here. And Perth, Australia native Paul Kildary was named director of the Hopman Cup last October. In its 25-year history, the Hopman Cup has previously never had a director that hailed from Western Australia, and Paul looks forward to continuing to grow the tournament in Perth and throughout the world. In his career on the court, Paul won three ATP doubles titles and reached a career-high ranking of number 67 in doubles in 1996, as well as number 138 in singles in 1995. Paul supervised his first Hopman Cup this January, won by the French, and received high praise from Tennis Australia CEO Craig Tiley when he was named director last October. Craig saying, Paul is the perfect choice to be tournament director of the Hyundai Hopman Cup, which represents an important part of the Australian Open Series. His passion for the event, the sport, and the state is second to none. Paul, those are some mighty high compliments and endorsements you received from the CEO of Tennis Australia. We thank you for your time today, and welcome to the show. My pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Paul, I want to start off with some, uh, you know, some pretty simple questions from the beginning of your, uh, your, sort of your childhood. You were born and raised in Perth. Did you, did you grow up playing multiple sports, or was tennis just a focal point from a young age? Uh, tennis was really the first uh, sport that I took up. Uh, I actually started hitting the ball around the house at sort of 17, 18 months old and believe it or not played my first tournament at four years old. So tennis was always the number one uh, number one thing I did. I did play other sports. I played uh, field hockey which is really popular in Australia especially in Perth. Uh, I played uh, soccer uh, did lots of sports. It's just we had a, we were lucky enough to have a tennis court at home, and it was sort of every kid from the neighbourhood had come to our court, and we'd sort of go from one sport to the other all afternoon and wear ourselves out before dinner. So it was uh, yeah, great city to grow up in Perth, but tennis was certainly the um, the number one thing I did. I loved it. And was uh, Paul? That's that's great story. Uh, picking the racket ball up at such a young age. Did you do that on your own, or were you encouraged by uh, mom and dad? Uh, my father was actually the state tennis coach in Western Australia. He was a he grew up in the country, sort of five hours in the outback, out of Perth. So, and he learnt to play tennis, hitting against a wall. But then he became a uh, top, the number one player in Western Australia. And then he went on to become the state coach. He he was a pretty good player. He got to the fourth round of the Australian Open in 1962. He lost to Fred Stolle. That's his claim to fame. <laughs> um, but he, uh, so he, he, you know, there was tennis rackets around the house. He was coaching every day. So I spent my whole youth basically hanging out at tennis courts with the family. And, uh, yeah, it's such a great sport for kids to get involved in. I was very lucky. Um, my father was a great coach. He 
coached uh, many professional players, uh, many top 100 players um, over the years. And, um, yes, yeah, so I was really lucky to have uh, have that help day in, day out. It's it's pretty interesting, Paul. Uh, speak, you know, speaking of, obviously, you know, uh, your dad being uh, a pretty esteemed coach, um, obviously tennis has been in your blood since you grew since you uh, since you were a kid. As a young kid growing up in Australia playing tennis, do you feel like now looking back, there was more pressure or inspiration because of the Austra- Australian tennis history and legacy for you to live up to or try and become something? Um, you know, I, it's hard to remember that about the pressure really. I think at, at that age, I was really just playing tennis because I loved it. I think it's a real privilege in our country to have that history. Um, you know, certainly as a young, a young sort of 13, 14 year old player when I was just starting to find my way and really deciding that I wanted to be a professional tennis player, it was so amazing to get the opportunity to, you know, whether it was play tennis with Fred Stolle or train with Wally Masur, John Fitzgerald, uh, Pat Cash, all with so many great players and uh, you know unfortunately now that a lot of our young players don't have that big group of senior players to look up to which was uh, for us a sort of common common uh, occurrence and you know back in 1995 or so I was probably ranked about 10 in Australia but I felt so far from really being at the top because we just had we had so many good players. Um, so you know, it was. I don't think it necessarily. I think it provided more motivation, I would say, than really uh, created more pressure. It was like I said, it was. It's uh, tennis is a big sport in Australia. People love it. The Davis Cup sort of yeah, traditionally has been such an important part of our tennis culture. Um, so it, it was a real privilege. Yeah, Paul, you mentioned uh, several Aussie greats, uh, including your dad, uh, as an influence. But um, you know, growing up, who were some of your biggest influences with respect to uh, people that you really looked up to, maybe looked to model your game after and, and uh, uh, idolized the most? You know, I had um, probably you know, I was born in 1973, so growing. Growing up watching tennis in the early 80s uh, and those amazing Wimbledon finals, probably Borg and McEnroe were the two that I really looked up to at a young age. Uh, absolutely loved McEnroe and, uh, you know, we used to, I used to try to go to sleep early and wake up in the middle of the night and watch those Wimbledon, Wimbledon finals. So it's a clear memory of mine. Um, a lot of the Australian players I mentioned earlier, like Tony Roach had a really big influence on my career, and John Newcomb as well. There are so many great Australian legends uh, that, that so you you know might have been a, a coaching clinic along the way, or just words of encouragement. Ken Rose will, you know, I remember him coming along and watching some of my matches. Just little things, but because there were so many former legend Australian players, it was. There were a lot to look up to. Uh, probably a vivid memory I have is when I was about um, 10 years old, I got to play with Pat Cash, who at the time was probably about 18 years old and really starting to come up uh, at the top of the top of the game. And you know, getting to hit with with Pat, and then he, he gave me his T-shirt, and uh, you know, just little things like that along the way. There was always encouragement from. Um, 
from the Australian players and I think because my father was so heavily involved in tennis it opened a lot of doors for me on the way up to have a lot of uh, great coaching opportunities and uh, great experiences with the older generation of Australian players. Yeah, that's. that's I mean, I'm sure it's been a been a was a pretty you know fascinating experience in childhood growing up in sort of that culture. Um, you know, now as you sit in the positions that you you sit and you kind of look back on a a playing career, would you say that the what's been the difference like as far as the Australian tennis legacy, as far as you know how it's impacted you? Has it impacted you more when you were playing or? you think as a person or maybe even in your professional professional career after competing, like how you see everything? Um, I think it's, it's probably my evolution in tennis. You know, from being a player, if you had asked me 20 years ago, would I now be running a, a major event? I probably would have never really thought. I Being a, as a player, you're so wound up in that moment. You know, I, I think what the... the what growing up as an Australian young Australian tennis player, it gave me a great appreciation for the history of the game. And I know it, when I started, when I finished playing, I started coaching, and I really tried to get that across to many of the young Australian players, just to understand the history. And you know, I had a when I was uh, 16, I worked with a coach by the name of Ray Ruffles, and uh, Ray was a terrific coach. He coached Mark Woodford and Todd Woodbridge. Uh, Jason Stoltenberg, Richard Fromberg, a lot of great players. But he, he was really uh, terrific at instilling uh, the history and traditions of Australian tennis and making us respect respect uh, the people who came before us, who really, the Ken Rosals, and the, you know, the Rod Lavers of the world, the Roy Emersons, who really played the sport just for the love of the game and um, but really helped... Uh, helped a lot of the young Australians, or the, actually the, the players around the world, they started the journey and, um, you know, the players who came after them were able to benefit so much more than they ever were because of the hard work that they put in. Um, so I've probably gone off track from your question a little bit. No, but, no, um, no, not at all. It's great. It's exactly yeah. stuff. No, it's, it's interesting. Um, no, it's, you know, that that stuff is important because I think, to be honest with you, you know, it's something that in the in the states in tennis we we kind of struggle with a little bit. But we, you know, one of the reasons why we were interested in having you on is just because of that, you know, that sort of culture and history and legacy in Australian tennis, and we know it's so big. You know, so it's interesting to hear about it. Yeah, I love it. You know, and I know I work uh, in my office here in Australia. You know, Neil Fraser works in here, and Todd Woodbridge and Scott Draper and Wayne Arthur's and. Nicole wow. Pratt and Wally Masur works for us, and there's so many um, former players around the office who are sort of who you see every day, and it's a, like I said, it's a real privilege that we come from a country with with so many great players. And another, like Todd Woodbridge, was involved with the Davis Cup team a couple of years ago, and he um, he had a Davis Cup video on the history of Davis Cup, and he made all the kids sit down and watch it for two years, just. You know, as a country, I think the more we can, um, you know, keep reminding kids about the great tradition of our, of our, of our, uh, that we have, the better it can be. And one of the um, real great things about being an Australian player, certainly when I was playing, there was probably 20 guys on the main tour who were Australian, and we had a great uh, camaraderie 
uh, amongst suppliers. We were able to train together, travel together, you know, we eat dinner together every night, and all all those guys, you know, pretty much to this day, still all my best mates. So we're really lucky. Unfortunately, we don't have as many players now. A little bit like America uh, on the main tour, um, but it's certainly something we've got to aspire to, because I think when you have a group like that, you can really push each other, and uh, success breeds success. And um, you know, that's what we've got to get back to. No, absolutely. Um, no, it's great. Um, you know, one of the things uh, one of the things I was thinking about when we were kind of uh, talking about uh, you know the topic for tonight's uh, you know to, you know having you on tonight was you know back in '91 I had the uh, at the then you know Nick Baltari Tennis Academy I had the pleasure of you know meeting you and getting to know you a bit and um, obviously it's been a long time since we've been around one another but I was wondering because we never actually probably had a conversation at that time about it. Um, both of us being engulfed in our, you know, in your tennis career and whatever I was doing. But uh, I was just wondering, how, how did you end up there? How did you actually end up at the academy? Yeah, it's an interesting story, actually, because uh, I'll try not to bore you with the details. But, uh, you know, when I was eight years old, I actually got to play tennis with Bjorn Borg, and he was managed by IMG. And the, Bjorn's agent, as a joke, sent Mark McCormack an email. Uh, sorry, not an email. Back then, it was a telegram, uh, just saying we should sign. We should sign this eight-year-old kid. And uh, Mark McCormack, obviously the founder of IMG, and um, he was uh, he was running the company. Uh, thought it was pretty funny. And you know, these days they probably would sign that eight-year-old kid. But uh, many years, uh, well, actually, you know, five years later, my father met was coaching on the tour a girl by the name of Jenny Byrne, who was sort of top 50 player and Mark was travelling with his wife Betsy Nagelson and they caught up and Mark being the man he, with the memory he had uh, remembered this telegram about this boy from Perth, Western Australia and my dad said oh that's my son so when the America's Cup was on in 1987 in Perth uh, Mark caught up with us and took us out for dinner and then saw me play tennis and then said, look, I'd love you to come and uh, Rob, my father, Rob, you can work for me and uh, Paul, you can go to the uh, Nick Boletary Tennis Academy. So it was, it was a, a chance meeting, but, uh, you know, one that certainly changed my family's life and Nick was uh, fantastic uh, to myself and my family and as was Mark McCormack and uh, I had a yeah, so a really lucky chain of events, but uh, they were Nick and Mark were certainly two people that uh, played a huge part in my development, not only in tennis but in in life. Wow! And congratulations on on uh, being able to get there, uh, Paul. That's that's a very cool story. And um, after spending time at the Nick Bolitari Tennis Academy, you moved to a very successful pro career. Uh, you won, as we mentioned at the top, three doubles titles, reached a career high of 67 in the world in dubs. What do you feel was your greatest personal achievement as a pro athlete that uh, isn't necessarily in the record books at this time? Um, good question. You know, it's sort of funny because I guess when you have, when you grow up from such a young age like I did, dreaming of becoming a top tennis player, and then you finish your career, and you know, I certainly don't look at my career as a hugely successful um, career, you know. So it's, it's, when I read that question, I don't, uh, or sorry, hear that question, I don't 
you know, nothing really jumps out at me, which some people might look at my career and think, oh, that's terrific. But I guess I always, um, I always had quite high expectations of how I'd do. Um, I think, you know, probably I was able to make great friendships out of my tennis career. I had uh, I had some moderate success, but I I uh, did my knee quite badly at, at the age of 22, which really um, sort of set me back quite a lot. Um, but yeah, I don't really look back on my career to be honest as a, a huge success. I had some, some big wins at times, you know, um, over guys like Rafter and Krychek and Crickstein, some good players, you know. But I wasn't able to week in, week out, really put that um, consistency together with, to, you know, put a great long career. So it's sort of a, a bit of a sticking point for me. It's sort of, it is what it is. Uh, but, you know, it's sort of uh, everyone want, would love to finish their career probably knowing they got the most out of themselves. And, and for me, I, know, I don't really feel that. So, you know, like, uh, you know, I have a huge passion for tennis, and whether that was being a player, coach, and now a sort of tennis promote, in, in promoter. So I... I feel blessed that I've been able to have such a long career in tennis but I don't really look back on my tennis career as uh, the whole lot of it <laughs> <laughs> well you know the the um, you know thinking about the way you, you know the, what you just said and you know kind of how you look back at your career I before asking you to, before asking you uh, another question um, I'll actually throw one thing out at you from back in the ball Terry days when we uh, when we when we first met um, if there's one thing about what I remember about your game that stood out was you made things look pretty easy. You were pretty smooth on the court from pretty much everywhere. And I remember a very good one-handed backhand with very good slice and good feel. So am I kind of a little bit on target from what I remember from 23 years ago? Yeah, you know, I think sort of, I guess that, you know, like, People always told me, yes, I was, I was, I was uh, number five junior in the world. I had a you know very good junior career. I um, had a people always said, oh, you're a very talented stroke maker, you know, da 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 da, uh, which probably doesn't necessarily make it easier when you finish your career and you haven't fulfilled your potential. So, sure. you know, all those things you say I heard all my life, which uh, <laughs> is a long is a long way from you know hitting the ball great and uh, having the ability to do many things with a tennis ball doesn't transfer to necessarily great results. So you hear that and you hear that your whole life, which probably actually just probably frustrates you a little bit more when you're not getting the results that you uh, you set yeah, out to sorry do. Sorry about that. I just thought I'd bring. No, that up. no, no. I, I you know. <laughs> I don't like I say I got no I got no regrets. Yeah. It's part of life, and you, yeah. you live and learn. And I think some of the you know when I stopped playing on the tour, I, I got into coaching, and I think uh, some of the I, I actually think I was a uh, you know a reasonable tennis coach because I think I learned learned a lot from my little things that um you know I did wrong right. along the way, and uh, I think in my other than my role of um, of the uh, tournament director of the Hopman Cup, I also manage some players, and I think it helps in in that role a lot as well because I I do know um, how tough it can be on the road for young players and things you need to be wary of and things you need to you know whether it's investing in yourself in your game. Um, there's so many there's so many um, parts to 
so many things have to go right to make it on the tour. And I think the more you can uh, surround yourself with great people and just the little things along the way. And I think uh, from my experience as a player, I think it makes me um, better in a lot of the things that I've taken up since I stopped playing tennis. Absolutely. Paul, I think we have a caller on the line that uh, has a question for you. Oh, just dropped off. I was just going to switch over to a question from a caller, and they just uh, just fell off the line. But, um, yeah. um, you know, prior to uh, finishing your career as a pro player, did you have your sights set on uh, position of manager for Tennis Australia, and, and how did you end up in that position? That was a bit of a weird one, to be honest. Um, I'd always wanted... I was uh, planning on working for IMG with, uh, before Mark McCormack uh, died and then that never worked out. I ended up coaching and I was a national coach for Tennis Australia. My boss Craig Tiley uh, asked me if I'd be interested in managing some players and at the time Casey Delacqua uh, didn't have a manager and she had a great run at the Australian Open. There were some uh, commercial opportunities for her and she asked me to help her, and it went pretty well. So that sort of started it, and then about probably nine months after that, uh, Sam Stoza asked me to manage her, and she was ranked about 70 in the world and uh, had never had a sponsorship or anything. And uh, so I didn't really think I could help her much, but it just, uh, you know, all of a sudden, uh, it's been more more my luck uh, she really took off and uh, within a year she was ranked 13 in the world and then she was top five the year after so you know i've uh, been very fortunate with those players um but it was something i always wanted to do but it, it, it sort of it was weird the way it came about and uh it's something i've really enjoyed along the way Paul, when you talk about the, sort of the, the way in which some of these experiences and these opportunities came to you, such as, you know, your position as manager for Tennis Australia, um, whether it be with Casey or, you know, then obviously later, you know, Sam Sosa approached you. Um, what is, you know, what is the position of manager for Tennis Australia, like in general? Like, what does it mean to you? Like, you're in that position to positively influence the current and future generations of, you know, Australian players. That must be, a, you know, not only a big responsibility, but a, pretty much an honour. Yeah, I think it's, an, you know, it, it's, for me, I, it's, I love tennis. I love the company I work for, and I really, the, a lot of the players I represent become like family. So, you know, it's sort of, uh, you, you become so involved in their lives. You know, I find myself waking up often at three in the morning to watch their matches or whatever it <laughs> sure. may be. So it's a real honour and uh, something I take uh, seriously. Um, but yeah, it's just it's it's nice to. For me, I didn't want to be travelling full time coaching. So you know, I'm really um, really fortunate that Craig Tiley had the vision to get me in this role, and, it, and it's worked out quite well. So, uh, yeah, I really enjoy it. Paul, again, hearty congratulations again to uh, being named director of Hopman Cup. And uh, just a curious question I have. Um, why and how do players elect, uh, elect to decide to play Hopman Cup, which is an EXO, obviously, rather than possibly playing a concurrent tournament for points? And um, do the players or the nations offer to play their event, or is it more of a recruiting effort on the part of the management of Hopman Cup? Uh, a bit of both, to be honest. I think uh, the Hopman Cup has such a... It's, you know, the I always say to our team that the biggest uh, ambassador we have 
for our event is the players who talk in the locker room. You know, the the players come in. They it's the we have a, a five uh, there was five hundred and fifty million dollar Perth Arena was built. Uh, purpose-built for for the Hopman Cup um, with a retractable roof. The conditions are as close as you'd get to Rod Laver Arena. The players love the fact they can come in. They know they've got three guaranteed matches. Perth is warmer than Melbourne, so there's plenty of practice. Beautiful hotel. The the tournament. The players love the tournament. It's competitive. It's fun. Um, so it really balances uh, you know the competitiveness. Uh, and it's a great way. It's so hard for the players to get matches early in the year, so they know they can come in and they can really plan their week um, terrifically. Uh, yeah, the, so really the the players love coming. So it's, it's uh, it makes my job a lot easier. They all want generally want to come back and try to bring a few new players in every year just for the, for the crowd. And obviously we want to attract the most. Um, you know the the characters of the game. We want to attract the big stars of the game, and we've had a pretty good uh, we've had pretty good success at doing that. Um, but yeah, like I say, the the conditions are so uh, close to what they're going to get at Rod Laver Arena that it's uh, not a hard selling point. Yeah, that's um, you know, Paul in the states, um, you know, Hotman Cup is. Uh, is not exactly the uh, the first thing that sort of people think about when the the year gets going um, in the world of pro tennis, ATP and WTA. But um, those of us who basically make our living in the sport and you know follow the tour week to week, you know know of it well and uh, look forward to seeing it on TV. And just uh, you know, it's a rare character of having the you know the the guy and the girl as the teammates, and then obviously uh, you know having that mixed doubles I think is you know quite interesting. Um, and a different dynamic altogether. Um, do you, each year, do you, like, maybe target specific countries or based upon maybe previous, you know, the previous year's, like, results from different players around the world? Or, or how do you typically think when you're getting ready to, you know, start organizing year to year? Generally, uh, obviously, there's those, those few, you know, sort of, Ten, eight to ten players in the world, which every tournament wants, and we compete against six other events the same week of, of the year. So it's, and everyone wants the same people. So it's a, yeah. you know, it's competitive. It's definitely competitive. We really try to, you know, you, you've got your stable, stable countries like, uh, you know, USA, France, um, Australia. Obviously, we have have a team every year uh, who we want back every year. You want the best players from those countries. Often, uh, we often look for teams where there's a real two strong players from that country. Um, sometimes there's, uh, you know, a lot of countries where there'll be a, a great female player and no male, or, and that's probably not always as desirable, depending on the personalities. Though, um, there's no there's no real formula to it. I just sort of, I guess. You see all these players around the world, and you, I think, what do the people of Perth want to see? Who haven't they seen? Uh, and and bring the characters to Perth, and yeah, and really, and and players who you know really want to be there, and they're going to give back to the crowd, and really play hard, and and just make it a great event. And it is, and it is a great event. It's a real privilege um, to be the tournament director of the Hopman Cup, and and uh, it's a it's a great challenge to. Um, continually draw, get the best players back. Uh, last year we 
uh, this year, sorry, we had a few pullouts at the last minute, but the average um, before those pullouts, the average uh, player ranking was 25.8. We had nine players in the top 20. So we really do a, a, attract very strong fields, and each year it's just tweaking that a little bit and trying to bring in maybe someone new or trying to get uh, one of those top, top players uh you know, we sort of it's a, it's always a challenge, but it's a uh, it's exciting one and uh, one that we are certainly up to. Paul, I have a fun question for you. You mentioned the brand new $550 million Perth Arena. Uh, this venue was set to host the Rolling Stones last Wednesday. Unfortunately, um, unfortunate circumstances, the show was postponed. I saw, I heard in an interview that you like the Stones. Um, was wondering if you were planning to go to that concert, what your favorite Stone song is, and who's your favorite Stone? <laughs> uh, you know, I'm not that big a fan of the Rolling Stones. I don't, I, uh, yeah, I, I wasn't planning on, planning on going to the concert. Um, between Perth Arena and here at Rod Laver Arena, we can we do have access to some great concerts during the year. But I... Uh, my wife was trying to get me along, but I actually uh, been travelling too much lately, so I wasn't planning on being there. But uh, I'll go with uh, satisfaction. How's that? But, uh, <laughs> cool, cool. And your fa- and your favourite member of the Stones? Oh, we'll, we'll go. We'll give the vote to Mick this week since he's having a tough week. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. No, but uh, not a. Uh, I like my sports a lot, but uh, don't go. To, my wife tries to drag me to a lot of uh, concerts, but uh, I don't go to too many. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, we really appreciate your time again, Paul, coming uh, coming to us from Melbourne on the air today, and uh, wondering if you have any final thoughts or uh, anything you can share with us about uh, Australian tennis and, and the Hopman Cup uh, going forward. Uh, no, thanks guys, it's really been a pleasure to come on and uh, reminisce about uh, things I haven't thought about it for a long time you know like I said before it's, uh, I feel in a really privileged position I um, I love working uh, here at Tennis Australia and for the Hopman Cup and it's a great challenge and uh, you know we Australian tennis is, we've got some great young players on the way up and uh, I probably uh, it's something I'm really passionate about so like I know you are in America and you really want uh, new young players coming up all the time which can uh, help help drive the sport and get more people playing tennis because it, it is a career, uh, like it, it's a sport of, for a lifetime and uh, the more young kids we can get playing the better. So I appreciate your time. No, absolutely. Thank you so it, much, for Paul. We, we know you're busy and it was great and it was a pleasure to have you on. My pleasure, guys. Take care. Thank you. You too. Take care. Thank we'll you, Paul. Yep, bye. And that was Hotman Cup Director Paul Kildary coming to us this evening from Melbourne, Australia. A real pleasure to have Paul on the show. Uh, after this commercial break, Sandy and I are going to come back and talk about the PowerShare Series event that happened last weekend here in Surprise, Arizona. And we'll talk about all of the legends of American tennis and a few international ones as well when we come back after this break. Little Caesars, home of the $5 hot and ready pepperoni pizza, now has a deep, deep dish pizza with eight crispy caramelized corner slices and even more cheese and pepperoni. So head on down and grab a large for just eight bucks and tell them Alan Varner sent you. 
They won't know who that is, but as a voice actor, I'm always trying to get my name out there. Check me out at alandoesvoices.com. That's A-L-A-N doesvoices.com. But first, get the new deep, deep dish pizza. It's hot and ready every day from 4 to 8 p.m. for just 8 bucks, only at Little Caesars. Pizza, pizza. At participating locations plus tax. To celebrate the not normal Mini Cooper, we hired an expert to tell you about Mini telepathically. Greetings. Relax and listen to my mind. The Mini Cooper hardtop comes with 37 MPG and co-cart handling. Wait, that's not telepathy. Listen again. The bigger four-door Mini Countryman has seating for five. Okay, you're just whispering. You're still paying me for this. Come see the 37 MPG Mini Cooper hardtop and the bigger Mini Countryman today. Visit miniusa.com slash info for MPG details. Awaken the tennis player you dream of being. Tennis 365 presents the official Tennis 365 app for educational purpose, tennis entertainment, news, and tournaments, based on the knowledge of international tennis coaches in USA and Europe. Whether you just picked up a racket or are getting ready to make a move to the pros, Tennis 365 has a tip for you. Tennis 365 provides one new educational tip every day for a year. Save your top ten and recall them before a match or use them to help during training. Keep track of your favorite players year-round with instant access to every tournament throughout the year. Download your app today. Hi, this is Johan Quick, and you're listening to the Pro 10 Radio Network. Denise Basic is a real Geico customer, not a paid celebrity. So to help tell her story, we hired a celebrity. It was Thanksgiving night when I accidentally hit a deer. Whoa, look out, look out! I called Geico expecting to get a recording, but someone was there to help me. Help me! Somebody help me! Geico got my claim in the works right away, and I was actually able to enjoy my Thanksgiving. Mashed potatoes, gravy, and cranberry sauce. Geico. Real service, real savings. Get the most out of your game with the best selection of Nike gear from TennisExpress.com. Play to win in the Roger Federer Premier RF Polo and Twill Short with matching Zoom Vapor 9 Tour shoes. Check out the Maria Sharapova Premier Maria Tank and Skirt and high-performance Nike Zoom Vapor 9 Tour shoes. Sizzle on every surge like Victoria Azarenka in the dry-fed woven tank and the woven pleated skirt with Zoom Vapor 9 Tour shoes. Shop all new Nike gear for fall at TennisExpress.com. And welcome back to Passing Shots, presented by Pro Ten International, association with the MLJ Group. Pete Zebron, along with Sandy Middleman, and we have the true pleasure of having Hotman Cup Director Paul Kildary join us in the first segment from Melbourne, Australia, talking a lot about some of the greats of Australian tennis. And Sandy, this last weekend here in Surprise, Arizona, northwest of Phoenix, we had the 12th and final edition of the PowerShare series. Uh, some legendary players were in attendance. We had Jim Currier, Mark Philippousis filling in for Pete Sampras, Michael Chang, Todd Martin, Jim Currier, and also the ladies joined us as well, Tracy Austin and Anna Kornikova. Certainly great to see uh, the legends of the game in action here in Surprise. Yeah, Pete, um, you know, you, you were at the event and, you know, you were giving me some pretty good feedback while they're texting me back and forth, uh, actually being uh, nice enough to share some interesting photos and videos with me as well, which were uh, 
pretty cool to have. Uh, um, nice to see good weather, especially when you're in uh, Rochester, New York right now, when it's not so nice. Um, but, you know, speaking of your, uh, your time in, in Surprise with the, uh, the PowerShare series, um, we, had the, we had the absolute honor and pleasure last night as well to have uh, the only photographer in the Hall of Fame, uh, Russ Adams. Um, and speaking of the Hall of Fame, Todd Martin is the uh, newly appointed uh, Hall of Fame, Tennis Hall of Fame CEO. Um, what was the experience like being around Todd, and you know, what did Todd have to say? Yeah, really, uh, Todd's very proud to, uh, to be the new CEO of, of the International Tennis Hall of Fame in Newport, Rhode Island. And, uh, you know, he, he expounded a little bit about uh, how thrilled he was when he played Davis Cup to wear the USA letters on the back of his uh, sweater when he went out and played uh, Davis Cup for the U.S., but also elaborated quite a bit about some of the things that he'd like to be doing uh, as, uh, as CEO of the Tennis Hall of Fame. Probably the thing that jumped out most uh, for me, Sandy, was – uh, making the event, uh, the Hall of Fame induction, uh, uh, much bigger than it is. Uh, again, you mentioned we had Russ Adams, uh, the only photographer in the International Tennis Hall of Fame, as our guest last night. But uh, Todd mentioned, you know, bringing guys back uh, annually, like John McEnroe, Jimmy Connors. Um, this event, uh, in Todd Martin's opinion, should be much bigger than it is. Uh, I know the other sports, Baseball, of course, the NFL, it's a big gala event with a lot of the legends coming back to Cooperstown, to Canton, Ohio. And this is what Todd Martin envisions as CEO of the International Tennis Hall of Fame, having the greats of the game who are inducted into the hall to come back as part of that induction weekend year in and year out. No, it's yeah, it's interesting, and you know, we did. Uh, you and I touched on some things briefly uh, off air and on a call about your experience there and what some of these guys were saying. Um, you know, when you talk about uh, you know Todd is newly you know new you know new appoint appointed position, um, and he obviously mentioned to you the idea of making that a bigger event. You know, when there's the induction ceremony, and Russ actually mentioned that as well last night. The same kind of a thing. Um, did he give any sort of, you know, sort of inside story to you about maybe how he sees that, um, you know, that shaping up or what he, other than obviously inviting guys back because um, the, the, there is a difference between the, you know, obviously the tennis hall thing and sort of like the inductions to like football or baseball or which is those are team sports. So when a guy gets inducted or whomever gets inducted, an athlete, Usually you've got a whole bunch of their teammates there. But in tennis, usually you're just inviting maybe a coach, maybe a, you know, maybe a few family members of your family. So did he give any idea for how he would approach that? Well, just better communication with, uh, with the legends of the game um, and, and a warm, open, warm invitations. You know, in, for the NFL uh, Hall of Fame induction, you know, that, that is in conjunction with a preseason game. Uh, Major League Baseball uh, induction ceremony, you know, there's an exo between an American and a National League team in Cooperstown. Let's not forget, uh, this is a, uh, an ATP 250-level tournament that's being taken place uh, here in Newport at that point in time. And uh, in addition to being the CEO of the International Tennis Hall of Fame, Sandy, Todd Martin is actually going to be the director of that, uh, of that tournament in Newport. So nice to be able to wear those two hats and uh, be interesting to see how he can play off of that, uh, maybe get a stronger field. Uh, you know, obviously the grass court specialists uh, 
like to like to play that tournament. In fact, Mark Philippoussis was also on hand uh, in surprise over the weekend. He actually won the Newport tournament, uh, one of the ten tournaments that he won. But uh, Todd talked a little bit about growing that field, making it a little bit stronger. Uh, a little bit of a tricky place in the calendar, obviously a grass court tournament uh, following Wimbledon. But, um, you know, you've got those guys whose game is best on grass, and they sure as heck won't pass that tournament up. <laughs> That's true. You, you make a good point. Um, you know, speaking of uh, speaking of Todd um, and sort of one of the, the mainstays of um, American tennis, you know, back in the day coming up with like Sampras and, you know, and um, – you know, Andre and obviously Courier and all those guys, you know, uh, Courier, Jim Courier has been a very, you know, sort of integral part of obviously when he took the captain, you know, the captainship of uh, the Davis Cup team, um, you know, sort of trying to trying to grow the game in his own ways. Um, and obviously he's heavily involved in the Power Share Series. He also has, um, I think everybody's pretty aware of the fact that he started and owns his company called Inside Out Entertainment. Um, you know what were uh, what were some of uh, you know, Jim's thoughts that he maybe shared with everybody, or even even you independently uh, about you know just the, the weekend and you know where he sees things with American tennis. Well, uh, yeah, I'll answer that in a couple different ways. I asked him specifically about the uh, the choice to uh, play that tie against Great Britain that took place in San Diego at Petco Park. Uh, I asked him specifically about playing that on clay, a red clay. I said uh, my question, my exact question to Jim Courier was, uh, you know, was it your vote or did you have one of the votes to uh, to go ahead and decide to play that on clay? And, and he said, look, uh, you know, I don't have a racket in my hand. It was up to the guys uh, because I asked, I, I said, you know, Andy Murray's a very good clay court player getting the Roland Garros uh Semifinals, getting deep in the in the clay court tournaments in um, you know in Madrid and in Rome as well. And uh, he said, you know, it was um, you know it was up to John Isner, Sam Querrey, and the Bryan brothers. And he said, uh, you know, Donald Young actually uh, played um, a match there, and uh, Donald Young wasn't part of the uh, question, wasn't part of the equation when we made that decision to play on clay. So uh, that was a collective decision uh, with the Bryans, with John Isner with Sam Querrey, and as you referenced uh, a few times in past shows, Sandy, you know, John Isner took Rafael Nadal to five sets at Roland Garros, and uh, I don't think anybody wants to play John Isner on any surface, <laughs> especially in the United States, exactly. even on clay. But, um, yeah, Jim also, I asked him uh, about some of the up-and-coming players uh, that, that the U.S. has. Uh, uh, Bradley Klein, number one, is, uh, you know, number 67, I believe, in the world. I asked Jim about... Uh, about him, and he said, "Yeah, he's been a practice partner with with our Davis Cup squads in the past. Uh, something that we've touched on on shows. He's uh, had a very successful run the last few months, and on the Challenger circuit, um, remains to be seen in, in the main draws of, of big tournaments, ATP tournaments." Uh, Jack Sock, uh, I asked him about Jack, and uh, obviously another another big server that we've talked about again, and. Uh, he said Jack needs to put in a little bit more work, uh, needs to get a little bit more serious about his game, uh, time on court. Uh, interesting words from uh, from Jim Courier there on, on Jack Sock. And, you know, also Ryan Harrison, a um, little bit of a mystery man, can show flashes of brilliance, looks like he's got all the tools in the toolbox to be a very good competitive player, uh, scares the daylights out of some of the main guys on the main tour, and then, um, you know, plays a challenger and loses to somebody that uh, – 
even even the tennis aficionados are not sure of the name of the of the guy he lost to on court. So um, you know, Ryan can 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 bring it against anybody. I saw him play against a, a fatigued Novak Djokovic and. Uh, you know, gave Novak all kinds of uh, fits and scares when when they played. Obviously, Novak got the win, but you know, Ryan Harrison is one tough customer, and I, I you know, I, I know that Jim Courier is happy to have him on his squad. You know, you, you talk about some interesting things regarding you know Jack Saw, Cur- you know, Courier, Captain Courier's view of sort of maybe what the next steps are in those you know their independent and individual sort of progressions as young professional players and sort of aspiring to get to the top ten and be the new generation. Um, and you mentioned that Jim referenced maybe hard work, just, you know, flat-out hard work. Um, it's interesting because as, you know, as we, before we came, started this segment about uh, surprise um, in the power shares, we had, we were fortunate uh, and honored to have Paul Kildare on, and he was talking about sort of growing up in Australian tennis and maybe, you know, how the younger generation, it's not just about hitting the ball you know, or their athleticism. It's about sort of being tougher and understanding, like, the intricacies to, to becoming a real, a real pro, a real pro, and what that actually means. So maybe, hopefully, with Jim supporting them and his experience, uh, being the workhorse that he was, which was what, part of what made him great, um, you know, hopefully that influence will not only help out the, the, the kids, the, the young guys coming up, but also maybe help out the coaches to help them out as well, maybe a more of a joint effort, you know, a unified direction to get them forward. Um, but, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, you know, uh, uh, both uh, Todd Martin uh, and uh, Jim Courier referenced Jose Higueras, who obviously has a, a very integral part in, uh, in the USTA player development. I asked Todd a question. Uh, it's kind of cool in press. I said, uh, Todd, I have a a picture of you hoisting a very large trophy. And he said, oh, Queens Club. I said, no, 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 Barcelona. Um, Todd Martin won a clay court <laughs> tournament in Barcelona, Spain, and uh, beat some very big names along the way. And I said, you know, what did, what did that win mean to you? And he said, well, it was kind of cool. You know, I was coached by Jose Higueras at the time, and Jose actually was a uh, was a ball boy at that tournament long ago. So that really meant a lot to uh, – to Todd to be able to get that win and and also uh, you know win it when when Jose was his uh, coach, but Jim Courier also uh, expounded a bit you know that we talked on on a previous show about uh, an article that appeared in the LA Times where uh, Jose Higueras was uh, scolding if you will some of the American youth both uh, men and women boys and girls for not really necessarily having uh, the appropriate work ethic. Uh, Jim Courier agreed with uh, with Jose Higueras's assessment and. Uh, Sort of at the end of uh, about a three-minute uh, uh, discussion, if you will, Jim Courier uh, concluded by saying, "There, I ranted." <laughs> you could uh, you could tell he wasn't uh, all too pleased. He was in complete agreement with um, Agaris's assessment of uh, you know the extra work uh, that that needs to take place uh, both both in the U.S. and Australia, for that matter. Absolutely, absolutely. You know. Uh, Pete, when thinking about um, some of the conversations you and I had about your last, this past weekend, your experience in Surprise and being around all these, you know, former legends of the game, um, you also mentioned that, uh, you know, you had the experience of being around both Tracy Austin, um, who's also known right now for obviously doing an awful lot of commentary, um, spending time in the booth, and then also also a rare a rare appearance with uh, the uh, the famous Anna Kornikova. Um you know, uh, 
what was your experience like, uh, obviously, being around both both Tracy and, obviously, uh, Anna, uh, coming from two very different sort of places with their backgrounds in the game? Sure. Uh, Anna was, was outstanding. Uh, you know, they were both, uh, you know, at the, at the players' clinic and uh, uh, cordial uh, to, to the players for the most part. Uh, you, you know, in the, in the match, in the mixed doubles match, uh, it actually uh, um, it was uh, Jim Currier and Anna Konakova beating Todd Martin and Tracy Austin in the actual match. But uh, he had a chance to do press with, uh, with Anna after the fact. Very delightful individual, very bright, intelligent, answered a lot of questions uh, in you know in their entirety. I asked her. You know, obviously, she had uh, back issues, and then later some foot problems, which cut her career short. Um, asked her if she had any regrets uh, about her career. She said, "No, not at all. Um, I, uh, you know, it was time for me. I couldn't compete uh, the way I wanted to on the court. I don't have any regrets. I uh, enjoyed my time on 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 the circuit. Obviously, won a couple of." Australian Open doubles titles with Martina Hingis. Uh, I think it was 99 and 02. She won those. You know, her first major, Sandy, uh, was at the U.S. Open. Came through qualifying, got all the way to the uh, to the fourth round. I think lost to Steffi Graf in that. Actually, Hingis or Graf, I can't recall. But you know, it was a qualifier. Got all the way there. Obviously, a Wimbledon semifinalist in in singles. Uh, very tough player uh, to play. But you know. Aside from that, delightful. I, I don't uh, think uh, Anna Kornikova necessarily gets as much credit uh, and due for uh, her intelligence and brightness with respect to, uh, you know, the acumen she has on the tennis court and how she how she prepared. She had a full career, uh, cut short, unfortunately, by injuries, but uh, has no regrets and uh, did expound quite a bit, Sandy, on uh, her very positive experience at the Nick Balateri Tennis Academy as well. Had some very kind things to say about Nick. Yeah, you, you had mentioned, uh, Pete, you had mentioned that, um, you know, she had mentioned some of those things in a conversation with you, and, you know, I had told you, uh, touched on a couple things about some experiences that I had around Anna and some things that people maybe don't necessarily focus on with her. Um, you know, the, the three things with Anna that uh, sort of stood out uh, all throughout her career that, people kept pounding and pounding and pounding in the press was she never won a WTA singles tournament and everything was like kind of about what she didn't do versus kind of talking about what she did do. And the fact was is that she got to a career high of eight. So at one time she had reached the Mount Everest of tennis, which is the top 10. Um, like you said, she had won a couple of, uh, you know, Grand Slam doubles titles. I mean, she was phenomenal player from all aspects, you know, all areas of the court. She changed sports marketing, um, you know, basically led the way for somebody like Maria Sharapova to start taking it to maybe even another level, um, you know. And, you know, the other thing about, the other thing about Anna was that, um, you know, for all the criticism Anna got, I was fortunate enough to be on the court next to her the first day she ever stepped foot on a court at Ball Terry's. And I'll never forget that girl like it was yesterday. Um, unbelievable, the way she moved, the way she used energy, the, the sort of passion and intent at such a young age that she expressed on the court, um, the way she hit the ball was, was very special. And she was one of the rare players, I believe, in the career of Steffi Graf to beat Groff three times in the same year, if I, if I recall that uh, correctly. 
But um, yeah, she was just phenomenal. I mean, you know, it's a pity that obviously she didn't get that one WTA, you know, that single title. But Anna was fantastic, and she's doing amazing work now with charities and things of that nature, and really lending her time and support. And like you said, um, unless you have a conversation with her, you'd never really know that she's this intelligent, well-spoken, and well-thought-out, and, you know, concerned about other people, you know, the well-being of other people. So it's great. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the uh, charitable work. That was actually uh, my first question in, in her press conference was uh, the five, uh, five and Alive group that she's working with going, to, going back to Russia, going to Afghanistan, helping children uh, who have health issues uh, below the age of five. So she's a, a spokesperson for that organization, takes great pride in, in that work. And, yeah, Sandy, singles player, um, number eight in the world, Wimbledon semifinalist, and, uh, you know, we've got the uh, Sony tournament going on in Miami right now. Uh, Anna Kornikova beat four top ten opponents to get to the final in Miami and had a one-set lead in the final against Venus Williams. Did not win that match, but four tep- uh, number 11 Venus Williams, four top ten opponents she beat. Um, you know, that's, that's, uh, she's accomplished more in her singles career than, uh, you know, a lot of players that uh, maybe won a smaller uh, WTA event. So no shame at all in the fact that she didn't win uh, a singles title. She accomplished quite a bit, uh, certainly on the devil's court with, uh, with Martina Hingis. And, yeah, probably what most people don't know about her that I had the uh, opportunity to, to learn, very bright, very intelligent, very passionate individual, um, giving complete, full answers uh, very solid tennis acumen uh, with Anna Kornikova. No, absolutely. Um, you know, you also uh, you also mentioned a little bit about uh, Tracy Austin, and uh, I think we can uh, touch on some things when we come back from the uh, when we come back from the, the quick commercial break. Yep, quick break, and we're, we'll talk about Tracy Austin and Michael Chang as well. The Den Academy is a family affair. You know, my dad, my wife, my brother, myself, we're all a part of it. We all grew up in tennis. We all are passionate about tennis. Being on the court with your son is good. We both have a good time with it. We both say things differently but mean the same thing. Let's see the grip. Don't change it. Oh, I saw it. I saw it. What makes a great coach is many things, but it ultimately comes down to seeing the game correctly and then being able to communicate that to the player efficiently. Right? So just nice and whippy behind that ball. When you finally get through to a player and you get them on the same page as you are, it's it's a pretty cool feeling. Oh! Oh, nice! Giddiness. You get giddy. You know, you get excited. It's, it's, it's just competition. This is emotion. It's, it's intensity out there. I mean, you know, that's what passion is all about, right? Passing Shots, presented by Protein International in association with the MLJ Group. Again, Pete Zebron, alongside CEO of the MLJ Group, Sandy Middleman. Final segment here, talking a little bit about uh, my time this last past weekend at the Surprise Tennis Center, Surprise Arizona, the PowerShare Series that featured Jimmy Courier, Michael Chang, Todd Martin, 
Mark Filipousis, Tracy Austin, and Anna Kornikova. And uh, we finished up talking a little bit about Kornikova, Sandy, and uh, she was uh, she was um, doubles click with uh, with Tracy Austin, and then of course uh, was able to uh, partner with Courier to beat Todd Martin and Tracy Austin in the doubles match. Yeah, Pete. Um, you know. Tracy obviously has been doing a whole lot of recent uh, TV and commentary and broadcasting, and um, I was curious to know uh, if you could share maybe uh, some insights that she might have, you know, maybe maybe the way she talked to some of the people in the clinics. Um, was it different than you hear on TV, or, you know, how did she sound in sort of a coaching role versus obviously trying to break down the pros, you know, the, the elite players in the game? Well, uh, disappointingly, uh, I, I, she didn't uh, show up for a press conference, so that was unfortunate. We uh, we had some questions for Tracy, and uh, especially with respect to uh, you know the women's game uh, for the American players, didn't have that opportunity. But you brought up the fact, uh, yes, she was on court uh, in the players' clinic with uh, Anna Kornikova, and uh, not exactly what I expected, Sandy. You know, was uh, here are some people that. Uh, you know, on the court is a big thrill for them to uh, to play with Anna and and Tracy, and uh, yeah, it seemed a little bit more like a drill instructor when she was moving people around, giving some of the instructions. Uh, uh, Anna, you know, much more low key, encouraging the people. Tracy was uh, uh, doing, in my opinion, a little bit more uh, coaching. Uh, I'm not sure that's exactly what the people had in mind when they uh, came out to the clinic. Sure. Yeah. Well, you know. Uh... It, to, to sort of each their own, you know, their own sort of vision of what's uh, what's required. But uh, based upon what you said you experienced there in Surprise, my guess would have been um, I've never personally met Tracy, but I've been around Anna quite a bit at various, uh, you know, various places, including this Academy. And, you know, there's no question that Anna brings a, a what I would say would be a bit more of a sort of youthful, vibrant, sort of, you know, kind of upbeat, encouraging, playful, sort of attitude towards the people and understand that at the end of the day, those people just want to have a hit and a good time. And that's pretty much the bottom line. Yeah, that's uh, the, the mixed doubles uh, event uh, was, uh, in fact, uh, 12 events at, on the PowerShare series. Uh, Surprise is the only event that, uh, that brings the ladies in, and it's a two-day event in Surprise as opposed to a one-day event everywhere else. In fact, I was talking with... Uh, one of the guys from uh, from the Inside Out uh, Entertainment uh, Corporation, and he he reminded me of the fact that these used to be uh, four day events across the country, and uh, you know down, now down to one. Um, in fact, uh, not only this is the only two day event uh, in the country, but also the only outdoor event. Granted, uh, we're blessed with great weather here in the in the Phoenix area, and some as opposed to you know Connecticut, Kansas City, Oklahoma City, some of these other venues that are hosting tennis in uh, January and February and whatnot. But, um, yeah, uh, one other thing, Sandy, I want to share. Uh, Michael Chang actually won the PowerShare series. Um, he uh, he defeated Mark Filipousis in a, in a final, sort of a lopsided final, a 6-2 final, but uh, uh, beat, uh, uh, beat Courier in the first match. And then uh, uh, Filipousis beat Todd Martin, and they squared off, and Michael Chang got the win. And, as we know, Sandy, uh, Michael Chang currently coaching Kena Shikori, who's battling with Roger Federer right now in a, in a quarterfinal in Miami. But, uh, you know, Michael expounded a bit that uh, he's really enjoying his, uh, his work with Kay. And uh, as, as is always brought up with Michael, uh, the group with Sampras, with, Cur- with Courier, with, 
with Agassi and uh, Michael Chang, uh, the first one to win a major, actually. And, you know, he kind of came up more with uh, Sampras and Courier. As he mentioned, Andre was already on tour, not really doing too much, but Andre uh, advanced to the pros quicker than those guys did. But Michael actually won the uh, won the first major of all of them. Yeah, Pete, um, you know, touching on some things regarding Michael. And, yeah, back in uh, way back in 89, he uh, won Roland Garros, uh, had wins over uh, Yvonne Wendell, which is uh, the, probably the more famous of his matches considering he cramped so bad he looked like he could barely even move on the court and at one time even uh, relinquished the idea that he could no longer actually get up with his legs and serve. So he hit the famous, you know, underspin you know, sort of uh, backspin, you know, uh, underhand serve in which uh, Wendell hit a ball, came into net, and Michael basically passed him on the backhand side, um, made Wendell miss the ball. He went on to beat, beat Yvonne um, and then obviously moved forward into the, you know, in the semis. I can't recall off the top of my head who he beat in the semis. It might have been potentially Chesnikov. Um, I don't remember. I'll have to look back to dig into the archives, but then... Uh, Obviously pulled off the massive win in the final, um, beating uh, beating none other than Stefan Edberg, who is now obviously currently Mr. Uh, Federer's coach. Um, so you know that, that, that's pretty interesting in itself. And and one interesting thing that Michael touched on, I think, in a few interviews over the years, on the occasional time he's given them, um, that you know nobody really realized at the time was, you know, that was a massive time in things happening in Tiananmen Square. So he, he sort of felt uh, you know, at the time during the tournament there was just so much going on there politically and, and, you know, in the country that he just kind of felt this sort of, I don't know, like maybe inspiration or, you know, extra bit of motivation or whatever it was. But, yeah, it was a fantastic uh, thing he pulled off there at 17 years old. And then also, you know, people talk about Michael winning only one slam. He was in, you know, uh, I think it was four more finals. So, you know, he and he came within one match of becoming number one. Lost to Sampras in the U.S. Open. Um, within one, within three sets of becoming number one. So, Michael was a phenomenal player. Well, and, and uh, yeah, one major, but, you know, Sandy, these Masters 1000s, as they're now known as, uh, he, he won, I believe, eight of those. And uh, he was tough, uh, tough customer in, in those big tournaments, much like uh, what we have going on in Miami right now. And, you know, he also mentioned... Um, you know, everybody's concerned and uh, gets excited when guys get to the top 10 and, you know, we got Isner in, at number 10 and nobody till 67 with uh, Query or whatnot. But, uh, you know, he I, I, I'll credit to Michael Chang. He, he said when people were talking about himself and Agassi and Sampras and Courier, he said, let's not forget uh, David Wheaton got to number seven or eight in the world. And uh, just because he came up at the same point in time as all these guys, uh, hey, seven or eight in the world is – is pretty darn good, but just uh, unfortunately for David Wheaton, kind of got lost in the shuffle. I thought that was really cool for Michael Chang to uh, to mention that. He also mentioned someone that uh, that Paul Kildare mentioned, Aaron Crickstein, quite a, another very good uh, American player who had great results. And uh, so Michael gets that, and uh, it's just not uh, the names that he's lumped with, but uh, you know other guys that didn't necessarily have quite great success. But um, you know Todd Martin as well is in that group, two-time. Uh, you know, major finalists. So, um, boy, we had a great group of uh, of American players back in the day. No, absolutely. And uh, to give a quick uh, shout-out to one more particular American player that's very rarely ever discussed is uh, Malavia Washington. 
and Malvia Washington had a memorable win over Todd Martin in the semis of Wimbledon in uh, five sets the year that Richard Krychek won it. Um, and Richard ended up beating Malvia in the final. But Malvia was, a, you know, I mean, he was up there. I mean, he was playing with all the big boys, um, you know, great player, you know, in his own right. And uh, one big tournament that uh, David Wheaton did win um, in his career, which he was known for, was winning what was then called the Grand Slam. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, quite quite a few uh, extra names to be thrown in there and sort of the, you know, the backlogs of great American tennis players alongside the Sampras, Chang, Currier, and, you know, um, you know, those guys in Agassiz. So, yeah, many, many great players. Yeah, really a thrill to be there uh, over the weekend, Sandy, to, to see these guys and be able to interact and talk with them. Todd Martin, Hall of Fame, Jim, uh, CEO of the Hall of Fame, Jim Currier, Davis Cup, captain, uh, you know, Michael Chang coaching uh, Kay Nishikori right now, Mark Filipousis, a two-time uh, major finalist as well. And, and you know, he talked uh, – I, I don't know if uh, most people know this, Sandy, but he had three knee sur- uh, six knee surgeries, three on each knee. And, uh, you know, he talked a little bit about uh, some of his big matches, uh, you know, not only in the finals, but the uh, – the time where he played uh, Pete Sampras and uh, was up a set and a break at Wimbledon and had to, uh, unfortunately for him, uh, withdraw from that match. But, boy, who knows what could have happened in that match. But uh, he was uh, he had the great Pete Sampras on the other side of the net at Wimbledon. But, uh, you know, Mark Filipousis uh, rocked, by, uh, rocked by injuries. We've, we've seen this from several other players. But uh, it was nice to see the scud. He had a great time. He got to the finals in, in surprise. And... Uh, you know, what are your recollections of, of Flip? Yeah, I mean, you know, known for the massive serve, the, uh, you know, the massive forehand. Um, you could just pretty much, you know, hit winners from anywhere on the court. I mean, look, at the end of the day, um, you know, these players, they, they, you know, they work like animals. They work like machines. They work to not only build up and perfect their bodies physically, but also to do their best to try to prevent their bodies from breaking down. So it's sort of a double-edged sword. They're trying to do both at the same time. And, uh, you know, to be to be quite honest with you, I mean, that guy was great. I mean, you know, nobody wanted to play that guy. So, you know, it's just great that he's around the game, I think, which is the important thing. And, yeah, uh, you know, um, no, I was going to say, Cindy, uh, you know, yesterday our guest was um, – International Tennis Hall of Fame member Russ Adams, uh, only photographer in the Tennis Hall of Fame. Tonight we had Paul Kildary, uh, director of the Hopman Cup in Perth, Australia. And we've got some, um, some guests coming up, some very intriguing guests coming up. Why, why don't you talk a little bit about that before we wrap up, Sandy? Yeah, Pete. Um, we've got in a couple weeks coming up, we've got the, uh, the tribute to Rochester, uh, New York tennis, uh, sort of a kickback to, uh, where I grew up. And, uh, a couple guys named uh, Jeremy Wurtzman and uh, Brad Thyroff will be uh, will be joining us, uh, and it'll be a pleasure to have both those guys. Um, very shortly after that, we're going to be having uh, Bobby Blair, who's the uh, the publisher and uh, sort of recent um, uh, recent author of uh, Hiding Inside the Baseline, uh, that's being um, sold now, uh, you know, all over the country, and. Um, and uh, on top of that, we're going to have Robbie Koenig uh, from Tennis Channel. We're going to have Tom Shimada 
a very good longtime friend of mine, Japanese Davis Cup player, uh, former former player in the Olympics, Olympic athlete, and a longtime player in the tour, uh, inside the top uh, 40 in the in the world uh, ATP doubles. Um, so yeah, and then there's going to be you know there's a there's a multitude of other uh, other people that are in the, we're in the process of finalizing uh, you know finalizing dates and commitments. So I don't really want to bring those up now, but within the next week or so, we'll be uh, we'll be making announcements via all Twitter, Facebook, um, you know, in all possible social media, and uh, also as we've ca- talked about the uh, Pro10Radio.com uh, website to uh, just update people if they're, uh, if they're interested in tuning in, but it'll be great. No, that's wonderful. It's been a, a great uh, last couple nights, of course. Tomorrow, Sandy and I will be on uh, talking about what's been going on in Miami at Sony Open Tennis in Key Biscayne, Florida. So uh, tune in tomorrow at uh, 9.30 Eastern, 6.30 Pacific for another issue of Passing Shots. And uh, for Paul Kildary, Sandy Middleman, and Pete Vibron, we'd like to say good evening, good night, God bless, and we'll see you tomorrow night on the 10 Radio Network. Oh, folks.